Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Working History, a podcast on the New Books Network channel, New Books in the American South. Working History is a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Learn more and become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Emily Twarog, Associate Professor of Labor Studies and American History in the School of Labor and Employment Relations at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. We're discussing her book, Politics of the Pantry, Housewives, Food, and Consumer Protest in 20th Century America, published by Oxford University Press. Emily Twarag, welcome to Working History. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Your book starts in the Great Depression, looking at the 1935 meat boycott in Michigan. And before we dive into that event or into that moment, could you start us off by talking in broad brushstrokes about how food has historically functioned as a focal point for broader working class protest in the U.S.? So, I I mean, I kind of think about it as if we're looking at the U.S. uh, through a lens of the everyday life of people, food Mm -hmm. is really central to to every class, uh, regardless of whether you're wealthy, whether you're working class, whether you're enslaved, food is this sort of critical component that pulls us all together but has been an understudied area. Um, you know, if we think about food, it's it's really, it drove the slave trade through a desire for sugar and, and other foodstuffs. It's been both uh, something sought after by immigrants coming to this country, um, which I talk about in the book, mm-hmm. um, but then often disappoints, right? When mm-hmm. one comes and realizes they can't afford the foods that they're, they've been dreaming of. You know, so I, I really got into the idea of thinking about food as... Uh, lens to look at U.S. history when I uh, was in grad school and I I read what is now kind of a a well-known article by Paula Hyman about the New York City kosher meat boycotts at the turn of the 20th century. And and I was like, you know, I I come out of, I actually worked in the food industry for 15 years Mm -hmm. and really missed it and and was excited to think about, oh, I can look at this from an academic perspective, right? I can think about how how food plays out in our lives. from an academic perspective. And what struck me about the history up until Hyman's article um, in the early 1900s and up until when I start my book in 1935 is so much of the, the history around food protests and work and food and the manufacture of food, when it comes to the everyday, the folks who are involved in that are fairly anonymous. We don't, mm-hmm. we don't know who they are, right? We have pictures, we may have some words, that they spoke or may have spoken, but we don't have, um, it's rare that we have, uh, you know, really much of a narrative about why it is that they're boycotting around, why, why they're protesting high food prices or why it is that they're engaging with food in the way that they are. But in 1935, there's kind of this turning point, um, with the boycott that I, that I look at in 1935. Um, but leading up until then, you know, you have policies being 
drafted in response to journalists like Upton Sinclair's work around the jungle. Mm-hmm. Um, you have protests around price gouging and poor food quality. And then sort of coming later into the 20th century, if we're looking at sort of the complex history of the school lunch program and and how those programs are are now still so relevant in our lives in terms of determinants for how schools, you know, how school funding programs help, um, as well as markers of shame for many poor and working class students. So food food can, can sort of can help write a narrative, I think, that's really compelling. And when we look at American history, and there's been a lot more work done on it recently, which is which is really exciting. Right, to see. right. And it, it seems, I mean, to me, really interesting, what I found really interesting about your work or, or find interesting about your work and some other stuff that's been coming out recently is that in a lot of ways, when you think of class history and labor history, it's pulling that out of the workplace and it's making it more yeah. central to the sort of everyday story, as you were saying, of people's lives and why why that's impactful. Right. And as a labor historian, that was really important to me. You know, I I get it. You know, I've worked my whole life. The workplace is a really important place to be telling history. But the reality is, is that, you know, all of that money that is earned as a result of your labor is then spent when you're not at work. Right. Mm-hmm. So we also mm-hmm. need to be telling. I was trying to move away from, you know, the siloing of like, oh, we have consumer history here. We have women's history here. We have labor history over here. It really, if we're going to take, you know, hopefully an intersectional approach to whatever history we're practicing. And as a labor historian felt like, well, we need to be looking at, well, what's happening with those wages once they come home? Like, are they enough to even buy the food that people need to provide the housing? And even if they are, what's then happening in the marketplace and how is that determining how that income is then spent? And, and from a gender perspective, you know, women are spending, you know, are the consumers still today, um, but historically as well, the consumers, right. For families, so they're making really important decisions about, you know, prioritizing how much things cost and responding to government policies and 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 going back and telling their husbands that we don't have enough, you know, and then that's impacting what's happening at the bargaining table if you're talking mm-hmm. about a unionized mm-hmm. workplace or that's what's, you know, the conversations that are being had on the workplace floor, right, um, about whether people are earning enough or not earning enough is about what's being spent in the home, right? Um, so it's, it's important, I think, to make those connections. Right. Let's dive in then to your, the, the first boycott that you, or the first sort of flashpoint, if you will, that you look at in your book, sure. and that's in 1935, Michigan. So could you talk a little bit about, uh, what the issues were that were being raised by that boycott, who was leading it, what was at stake? And, you know, we can maybe use that as a segue to, to move through the century and, and talk about, uh, these, you know, these food protests and consumer politics. Sure, sure. So, um, of course, it's 1935, so we're deep in the Depression. And, you know, folks in Michigan are, as around the rest of the country, um, you know, are are unemployed, uh, struggling to make ends meet, uh, getting evicted, not having enough food. And at the same time, the the government, the national government, federal government has decided they're going to pass the Agricultural Adjustment Act to, in the, in the minds of working class, to kind of defer to sort of help big business survive and to help big farmers, not small farmers. And mm-hmm. this was sort of a, a important distinction that that housewives made. They weren't targeting, you know, small farmers in the community. They were really targeting the big three, you know, meat packers. Mm-hmm. And they felt like the Agricultural Adjustment Act was essentially a law passed to protect big business. And 
as a result, the prices of, of meat were going up. Um, the prices of food in general were going up. And it's also important to note that relative to the time period that my book covers, which is the 30s to the 70s, you know, food was much more expensive, the 30s through the 70s, and a much larger percentage of one's household income than it is today. But that the food costs were so high. And so, you know, in Canada, there was actually a book just came out this year or last year, 2019, um, talking about food protests by Julie Garden. A big piece of that was focusing on milk. Mm -hmm. Uh, for us in the U S meat was the big focus and they chose meat because it was an indicator of class status, right? Mm -hmm. If you could Mm -hmm. afford to eat uh, a steak, you're doing pretty well, right? If you can afford to only eat ground beef or bits and parts, uh, you're not really, you know, you're struggling. Mm -hmm. Uh, so the community in, in Hamtramck, which was predominantly Polish, um, but also throughout Detroit, um, African-American communities, other immigrant communities, throughout Detroit, uh, decided to organize a mass boycott against uh, the high cost of meat. And so um, began to protest outside of butcher shops around the city, um, virtually shutting down butcher shops across the city and in Hamtramck, which is a small suburb that is kind of surrounded by Detroit. Um, and at the time had a large auto plant and was is really dominated by the Polish immigrant community at the time, which is what I focus on in the book. Mm-hmm. So what ends up happening? Uh, what What's the, the end result of shutting down the butchers in this, relatively speaking, small part of the country? What ends up coming out of that? The question I always get is like, so were they a success? And Right, yeah. Yes and no. I mean, yes, prices went down a little bit. Uh, yes, they succeeded in making a big stink and shutting down butcher shops um, and really disrupting everyday life for uh, consumers, which was to draw attention to it. It was also to put pressure on local as well as national political leaders to challenge the Agricultural Adjustment Act Mm -hmm. and bring more aid to families um, that were suffering under the Great Depression. So, I mean, I say in in the most immediate way, was it successful? Not really. I mean, it was moderately successful Mm -hmm. in the sense that Mm -hmm. food prices did go down. I, I argue that it was more successful in the sense that this is, I see as a turning point for women's mm-hmm. activism, mm-hmm. especially amongst working class women. Up until the 19, 1935 boycott, um, women were fairly anonymous. It was, it's hard to really tell who were doing these kinds of food protests. I mean, they were happening each decade in the 20th up until uh, 1935. Um, but we don't really have a strong sense of who who was engaging that in them beyond like different immigrant groups. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't tend to leave their neighborhoods. With the 35 boycott, um, there's delegations sent from Detroit to Washington, D.C., and another delegation sent to, to Chicago to target um, the meat packers. The delegation that goes to D.C. is meant to target um, Secretary of Agriculture Wallace um, to call out um, this the, the AAA or the Agricultural Adjustment Act and call for better policies uh, that would benefit workers and their families. Um, And Mary Zuck, who was the leader, essentially the very public face of this boycott, began, you know, her picture began showing up in the news media by name. She was getting quoted. Um, She developed a national presence in the media. And there were ripple effects where there were other protests around the country in Chicago, in other industrial um, cities, in New York. 
and different organizations came together. And, and in Detroit, you know, the African-American community also was boycotting. They, you know, I could find no evidence that they were organizing sim- together mm-hmm. um, in conjunction in terms of strategy, but they were happening simultaneously. And um, there's definitely evidence in the Housewife League's uh, papers that there were boycotts happening at the same time within the black communities and neighborhoods, um, just as there were in the Bohemian and Jewish communities. There were also some class divisions where uh, more middle-class families in the suburbs felt like this wasn't the best approach, that it was sort of too angry and too militant, and perhaps we should just be doing petitions instead. So it really got to these issues of like strategy and coordination Mm -hmm. and how do we use the media to our advantage. And so for that reason, I, I kind of, you know, I call the 35 meat boycott a success in those ways. So in terms of the most immediate needs for working families and poor families, not the hugest success, but for building a movement, Mm -hmm. uh, a women's Mm -hmm. movement, a a stronger success. Can you walk us through some other examples? And as we, as we move through the century, using this as, as our foundation, if you will, Um, and, and moving forward to think about how then through World War II into the 50s, 60s, 70s, issues around food and the household really come to be politicized. They come to shape the broader policy discourse that's going on and really where housewives and homemakers and gendered arguments are central to that. Yeah, one of the other reasons I, I found this 35 meat boycott is as significant is because as we then head into World War II and we're, you know, in industrial America, seeing successes around organizing, you know, new unions uh, affiliated with the Congress of Industrial Organizations or the CIO. There's also, uh, you know, those folks that are getting organized in those industrial unions tend to be, you know, more, you know, lower skilled workers. We have, you know, you're talking now about millions of workers uh, being unionized. And as a result, you know, millions of families being unionized. Um, and being sort of touched by this idea of labor unionization. And so one of the things um, I really wanted to focus in on was, well, you know, we know that obviously women were also in the workplace, not at, at the numbers that, you know, men were, but there was still a significant portion of women who were in the workplace. But, and that's been written on by, by a variety of historians, of course. But what I was interested in was what was happening with the families and even those women who were earning a, a wage were still identifying as housewives. Mm-hmm. And so what were the housewives doing around this when we see this unionization peaking? And so as we head into the 40s and during World War II, uh, the government establishes the Office of Price Administration, uh, which no longer exists, was dismantled at the end of the 40s, um, but at the time was the largest governmental organization. And what was fascinating to me about this massive government organization was that they had like a vast um, network that went out into the community and they relied on a network of community leaders to inform them on policy. So um, from my perspective, looking at food and looking at the household, they had all of these like, you know, housewife checkers that were checking to make sure that um, grocers were abiding by the price controls that were put into place during the war. And they had a whole sort of hierarchy of checkers and volunteers, some folks who were staff. Um, They had advisory councils. They have a women's advisory council, a labor advisory council. As with any government organization, 
one council, you know, one group of staff didn't seem to be talking to the other groups mm-hmm. of staff. And there sure. were arguments uh, when you look at those papers between like, well, you really should be talking to the women. And but I'm talking to the labor union, which is basically the men. And, you know, but the women are what's getting things happen. And there was like all of this frustration. And it was just really fascinating to me that the government was really dependent because, of course, they did not have nearly enough staff to monitor all of this. They were really dependent on this sort of volunteer core that comes out of um, these meat boycotts. And mm-hmm. at the same time, the unions that are growing, so the UAW and the steel workers and the meat packers and so on and so forth, unions that are affiliated with the CIO are establishing these women's auxiliaries that, um, at least in the case of, I was with the UAW in particular, which was the largest auxiliary organization in the 30s and the 40s and even into the 50s before the merger in 1955 of the AFL and the CIO, this UAW Women's Auxiliary, which is a national organization and really functions as its own kind of autonomous community organization that has a very wide network of influence around not just food, but fighting against, fighting for the Fair Employment Practices Commission, the FEPC, and protesting poll taxes in the South around voter registration um, in Blacks, helping to organize uh, covertly the Ford plants in the early 40s. Actually, there was a women's committee and an African-American workers committee that came together and did organizing to get Ford unionized. So there was there was a, you know, it was a pretty uh, kind of radical militant organizing strategy. And they really saw themselves as the potential for organizing a working class women's movement in the mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of those women had been involved in that 35 boycott um, and got their start doing these kinds of food protests. Um, and so that to me was, you know, this is much bigger than just a food boycott, right? This is much bigger than like, we're angry that meat costs too much. Um, we're angry. We can't buy what we want to be able to buy. They really saw themselves as influencing policy and racial relations and union policy. That begins a shift, obviously, after the fifties, uh, the rise of the cold war, the merger of the AFL CIO really diminishes the radical elements of the women's auxiliaries. Mm -hmm. Um, and by the 60s, we, we see a sort of resurgence in women's uh, protests around food, but it's now kind of a different group of women, mm-hmm. less union, more uh, kind of suburban uh, housewife groups that are, you know, have a growing political awareness. A lot of the women I interviewed who were involved in the 60s and 70s had read, you know, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Uh, Francis Moore Pay's, you know, Diet for a Little Planet, A Small Planet. Um, were aware of or involved in the civil rights movement, uh, with the growing women's movement. And so they were coming at it from a from a sort of different perspective. In fact, when I interviewed some women, I said, oh, were you involved in any women's auxiliaries? They're like, oh, I, I'm not, I don't belong in an auxiliary. There was a very different framework for that <laughs> yeah. by the 60s. It was sort of an insult to think of that as a possibility. Continuing on, along the line of, of what you were talking about, uh, with this shift in the women who were participating and sort of politicizing these, you know, issues around food and also then their center of power, if you will, right. Versus, you know, where we have on one hand, we have these, these women's auxiliaries earlier on, and then we kind of shift into the women's movement, right. Do we see the, the issues that they are 
bringing forward changing or do those stay the same or is it just the strategy that's changing? Are they still talking around that same issue of purchasing power and agency and, you know, all of those things around food or is that also changing? Um, so they are really still focused on purchasing power. Mm-hmm. I mean, there really is still a link between what their, you know, husbands are bringing um, in the case of working class women, what their husbands are bringing home and what they're able to afford to purchase, and also a real frustration with the government that there is um, really con- continues to be very few consumer protections. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a real push to demand consumer protections by the, by the federal government. So in that way, it's still very similar to the, to the 30s and 40s. Um, I would say that it is different than the sort of first generation, uh, the sort of 30s and 40s generation of boycotters in the sense that they're, they're much more decentralized now. Mm-hmm. They're no longer attached to kind of like the women's auxiliaries or the labor movement sort of writ large. They're now, it's happening much more organically and the organizations that come out of these boycotts. So in 66, 69, 73, there are meat boycotts that gain national attention Mm -hmm. um, that spread across the country. And in each of those, it's fascinating to me that, you know, I previously only focused on the 30s and 40s really in my work. And so when I started diving into the 60s, I was like, oh, these women are are still alive, right? right? I can interview these people. And so I I hunted down a lot of them and was able to interview folks. And a lot of folks had no idea that there had been a boycott. So like the folks that organized in 69, women like um, Mickey DiLorenzo on Long Island had no idea that like in 66, there had been a big like boycott that launched in Denver that was very similar to hers. And similarly in 73, they weren't really aware that in 69, there had been a boycott. So it was very decentralized in that way. Um, and the organizations that grew out of each of those tend to, to, at least in 66 and 69, didn't really have much of a, a life beyond. Um, there are some exceptions to that. Um, but so the focus is still really on pricing, um, the, the connection between wages and purchasing power, as well as government obligations and responsibilities, right? This mm-hmm. collective identity as consumers that the government needs to be protecting consumers and not just business. Um, and of course, by the 60s, uh, we now have Esther Peterson in the White House as the first special assistant to the president on consumer affairs. And this is the first time that there's somebody designated as sort of empowered to look at issues of consumer affairs. Uh, she's really her hands are pretty tied. She's mm-hmm. got very little mm-hmm. power. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to enter, you know, I looked at her papers, obviously at the Schlesinger library at Radcliffe and I was able to interview actually her assistant at the time. She just had one staff person who was his assistant and I interviewed him and he said it was just, it was just a mess. Like it mm-hmm. was really frustrating mm-hmm. because she had no budget. She, she'd initially, the plan had been that president Kennedy was going to appoint her. Um, and before he could appoint her, he had been assassinated So the sense was that Johnson appointed her as kind of like, you know, okay, well, Kennedy said he would do this, so I'll just continue to do this. But he never really had any vision for what this would look like. So she had she she could never get into the to the Oval Office to have any conversation with him in any significant way. But big business and the advertising industry really saw her as a threat, like Mm -hmm. while Johnson just kind of ignored her um, and, and the government didn't really give her any resources to do her work. Uh, she was a constant 
topic of conversation in the print media, especially around advertise the, in the advertising industry. Mm-hmm. Her role was supposed to be one of like neutrality where she was going to bring the interests of the consumer and business and advertising all together. And they really believed that she was just kind of a, you know, only interested in representing the, the consumer interest. Um, and so they were constantly looking for ways that she would trip up and and sort of lambast her in the media. Ultimately, she ends up resigning, really frustrated by how her hands have been tied. And and a former model and ad agency uh, woman is put in her place <laughs> to succeed her. And um, she had sent in a long list of really impressive women to to take her place, and they were all looked over for. Um, I'm, of course, now spacing her name. But uh, this woman who used to do Westinghouse fridge commercials. Okay. Um, <laughs> and so she's just like, that sort of adds insult to injury. Sure. Or that saying is that, you know, you didn't even take me seriously. Now you've replaced me with basically like a, a pretty face, somebody right. who doesn't know what they're talking about. Right. Um, but she gives a lot more voice um, for especially the 1966 meat boycotters. They get a lot of press because of Esther Peterson's role in the White House at the time. And there's actually a picture that that uh, is in the book that um, of Esther Peterson hugging the head of the meat boycott in 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 uh, Denver, and you know other historians have said you know that's why she she ultimately resigns because she's pressured by the White House to resign because of that photo, mm-hmm. um, which based on her archival you know her letters is not the case because there's like I think she writes a resignation letter every month for like a year. <laughs> She just has it stored in her desk. She has like a big file of resignation letters that she'd been writing um, that had various different themes. But um, but Esther Pearson was fascinating because she actually had, I mean, if she had been able to be successful, she had the pl- a plan to completely reorganize the Department of Labor um, in the late 60s, looking at labor from a much more holistic point of view, like mm-hmm. from the view of the family. And I often wonder, you know, if she had, if she had, had an advocate in the White House, somebody who was really going to help her policies move forward. She had huge policy plans, whole ideas drafted, pages and pages of how, you know, we would we would probably have paid maternity leave by now, mm. definitely have had paid childcare by now. I mean, these were the things that she was writing about mm-hmm. in the 60s that, that we should have um, implemented so that the Department of Labor would be focusing much more broadly on families as, as a whole and not just work. So it's, you know, it's sort of a what if, if only kind of moment when I looked at her stuff. As you're talking, I'm thinking about the way in which it seems that the protests around food and and consumer politics is is really in many ways separating like the, you know, the roads are diverging between that and like you're saying, the the labor movement and kind of bigger issues of quote unquote work. So is that fair to say that that we begin to see in this moment that divide between consumer politics and labor politics? And what keeps kind of popping into my head around this is the table grapes boycott, right? Mm-hmm. Where you mm-hmm. have, and, and that's probably the food boycott that, you know, if anyone knows of a food boycott, exactly. that might be the one, right? So, and that was very labor centric, right? But it was yeah. dependent upon consumers to carry it out. So where do you see that intersection happening or not as the 20th century moves forward? Um, and you, I think you hinted at that or started to hit at that when you were talking about these bigger holistic views of what labor was all about. Yeah. So 
They definitely intersected. And I mean, some of the folks that I folks, especially the folks in Chicago who were organizing in 69 through 73, you know, some of them like met on picket lines for the great boycott. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, you know, were sort of politically aware um, about what was going on and that this, you know, that the great boycott was going, that was happening. And I think I read some a statistic that at some point, you know, 10% of the American public or American consumers were boycotting grapes, which sounds small, but I mean, is, is fairly significant. Mm-hmm. You know, one in 10 shoppers is like not buying grapes because of a boycott. Um, I used to organize consumer boycotts and I've n- never got anywhere near those numbers. I think they definitely, you know, that the idea of a consumer boycott um, was a much more viable idea because of the national coverage of the great boycott. But I also think that and obviously the labor movement came out in support of um, the farm workers boycott, labor, uh, great boycott, but they did not come out in support in the same way of the, of the meat boycotts as they mm-hmm. did in the thirties and forties. Mm-hmm. They didn't oppose it, but they were so disconnected by this point. Mm-hmm. Um, the labor movement was so much more insular and not anywhere near the kind of grassroots organizing model of the forties, uh, by the time you get to the late sixties and seventies, it's, it's the, the consumer movement around meat and, uh, consumer protections, you know, passing legislation around, you know, car safety and the Ralph Nader, you know, the the Nader Raiders, Mm -hmm. that stuff is, is really divorced from women in the labor movement and the labor movement as an organization. So you no longer see those auxiliaries really even involved they don't even exist to the same degree, but also they're just not even, they're still meeting through the seventies, but they're not even talking about it. I mean, I went through all of their convention papers and it's not even getting mentioned. Mm-hmm. So the, the folks who really are leading the way on these, on the meat boycotts are folks much more concerned about the environment and about consumer protections, um, which has developed a life of its own around consumer activism in the, in the sixties and seventies, really pushing to have a you know, more representation in federal government and on a, on a, on a state and local level. And in the, you know, Esther Peterson still super involved in the national and the national consumers league, Ralph Nader kind of mentions the boycotters in 73. Um, and so folks are starting to get a lot more attention to those boycotts. And that's when you actually, by 73, the folks who are really involved in these boycotts, um, the 73 boycott, you know, got on the cover of Time Magazine. There's this amazing, I really wanted to use it in my book, but I could not afford it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> amazing cover of Time Magazine where you have a housewife and a farmer cartoon going up against one another. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted it to be the cover of the book so badly. And uh, that was not financially possible. Oh. Uh, yeah, I couldn't even like put it in the book. Like the restrictions <laughs> were so great, but um, I'll send it to you just so you can see it. But it was, it was a really, uh, it was a, a very public national boycott and you had the government cafeterias saying they're going to have like meatless Mondays and different legislators saying they're not going to eat meat because there was so much outrage. And, you know, it's also 73, right? All sorts of other things are happening. Nixon's going down the tubes, you know, there's the gas crisis. So there's a whole lot of other stuff going on around just generally the high cost of living, but na- a national organization comes out of that were uh, organizing that lasts until the early 80s, um, where you end up with Esther Peterson back in the White House again under the Carter administration. And you begin to see meetings happening again in the White House with 
consumer activists, labor activists, women's activists coming together, trying to talk about solutions to um, the high cost of living that ultimately don't really end up going anywhere. And I, and I argue in the book that it's it's because we, by that point, the labor movement is weakened and there's such a shift around class identity and this idea of a collective class identity has really disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, that it, there's just no power on the in the grassroots to make that sustainable. It lasts regionally, like California maintains it. There's still some good, strong legislation that comes out of that, but it's really driven by the environmental movement, mm-hmm. I'd say more than anything, and the fact that, that there's a hub for the farm workers there. So it's it's a very different kind of movement. And I and I also argue that it was it was a loss. I think if the women's movement had gotten more involved in the consumer movement around high cost of living, there could have been something more sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a real, that just wasn't where the women's movement was at at the time. There couldn't have really been like a sustainable partnership. Sure. But it seems in some ways that your, your book maps out potential ways for all of these divergent issues. And this kind of gets to the question that I was going to ask you about kind of big takeaways for today. Yeah. Um, you know, you think of the environmental movement, you think of the consumer protection movement, you think of climate change, you know, all kinds of big issues, the labor movement, living wages, and it, these are all very disparate in a lot of ways. And you're talking about, and your book talks about kind of the history of how all those people can talk around an issue successfully. So (laughs) that's, I think that's really very current. But from your perspective, what do you see as the big takeaways from your research and from your book for this current political and economic moment that we're in right now? Yeah. So, you know, I was writing this book all before Trump was elected and I thought about it. I, I saw that question and I was like, oh, okay, this, I haven't, why do you really think about this? And I, I feel like I would answer this question very differently today than I would have even just like two years ago sure. yeah. uh, when the book was first co- coming out. And I think that, you know, when, in the 1970s, a big driver was the was the environmental movement, and I kind of think we're back there. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like there's a a lot more consciousness around the environment right now. Um, you know about where you know even my generation, my kids who are 13 and nine, and and college students are so much more aware and astute about um, how our consumer practices. Um, writ large impact the environment, mm-hmm. but also more, you know, increasingly about like meat consumption and food consumption. And I think that will, has a real potential for raising some of the, the issues in this book um, and bringing them back into the fold today mm-hmm. um, around, you know, uh, thinking about, um, you know, while we do spend less on food today, than we did in the seventies, our quality of eating has precipitously declined, right? Mm -hmm. Whether Mm -hmm. you're middle-class or working class or poor, like you do not have time to cook, right? Mm -hmm. Even if you can afford to buy the food, your time is so limited that people are relying on, you know, prepackaged quick eats kinds of foods or takeout in a way that we never have before, which has, you know, an impact on multiple levels, environmental health, you know, just also sort of the sanctity of the dinner table mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, and just family time, right? But then also, I think that, you know, looking at it in terms of for uh, the working class folks who are working hourly minimum wage jobs, p- 
people don't even work a regular schedule anymore. So if we think about work scheduling, which there's been a bunch of legislation on a local level passing mm-hmm. about, you know, the, the epidemic of like split shifts, right? Mm-hmm. Where if we have mm-hmm. to come in for four hours, leave, then come back. Like they're not even home to cook. Forget about being able to even have time to sit down at the table, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so while we're still talking about food, we're talking about it a really different way, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like the health and the environmental impact of food and how we eat it, but also how we've really gotten to this place in large part because of labor practices, right? Mm-hmm. The way in which people are exploited in their work and we're at, you know, 10% union density. Um, the folks that were driving this were making enough money. Um, even if they had two folks working at home, they were still working a much more normalized schedule, mm-hmm. right? We're not even there anymore. We're in a very different economy. So I think I think both the, the the labor movement and the environmental movement can do a lot to kind of raise these things. And I think just also in the era of Trump, there's a lot more attention being paid to collective action than there there has been in a long time. So I'm kind of hopeful that 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 will motivate people to to work collectively on different issues that even a couple of years ago, I was feeling a little less optimistic about. And of course, there's been and and folks have written about this, like Monica White and others you know, there's been a, a real upsurge in black communities around food and access to food and, you know, uh, urban gardening and urban farming. And, mm-hmm. and here in Chicago, in the immigrant communities, you know, growing gardens and really trying to get back to local communities, creating affordable food in their own communities, which I think is very important. I didn't get a chance to talk about that too much. I talked about it a little bit in the epilogue, but definitely something that's sort of a next step to explore. Mm-hmm for sure. Excellent. Well, Emily Tuareg, thank you for joining us on this episode of Working History. You're really welcome. It was fun. Thank you. Thanks to Emily Tuareg for joining us to discuss her book, Politics of the Pantry. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, a podcast on the New Books Network produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member of SLSA online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History. Working History.